one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 502 for the week of Monday, January 7th, 2013. Yes, I'm saying it differently. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me for this first news show of the new year is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, and uh, welcome on board to 2013, everybody. Uh, should be a fun year. Fasten your seatbelts. Yes, indeed. We are about ready to kick our thrusters into full gear to 104%. But before we do, we have to welcome as well Mark Ratterman. Hello, and listeners, insert your favorite jingle for news. Uh-oh. The music not, is starting in our heads. Not that we need a jingle, but it just came to mind as you were saying things. Well, we do <laughs> have our awesome jingle at the beginning and end, thanks to Todd Cecilio, but that's a whole nother story. Yep. Right now, we are firing our thrusters up to 104% of their maximum rated capacity, and we are going to get 2013 started with our first news story. And what is the first hard-hitting news story that we're beginning with? Social media. Doesn't seem like it's very hard-hitting. That's because this isn't. We're starting the year off a little easy before we get into the hard-hitting stuff. As you might remember, on the latest expedition launch, Expedition 34 to the International Space Station, one of the crew members on board was Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. We actually interviewed him at the final space shuttle launch of STS-135, which you can listen to on our site. But besides that, he has been tweeting up a storm. There are certain astronauts who have been great with social media, Mike Massimino the first included, but... He has gone a little bit above and beyond. Besides just tweeting pictures, he is responding to a large number of tweets, including one from an unlikely source. That source? Captain Kirk himself. Yes, you heard me right. Chris Hadfield had a tweet encounter with the main man himself, William Shatner. Here was the tweet that occurred between him and Chris Hadfield. The tweet said, from William Shatner, are you tweeting from space? MBB. Chris Hadfield replied, yes, standard order, Captain, and we're detecting signs of life on the surface. Entertaining, huh? Yeah, uh, MBB, by the way, uh, is uh, Shatner's shorthand for my best bill. Um, it, yeah, interesting exchange between two Canadians having a grand old time. Uh, you know, one that used to fly a, uh, uh, a fake spaceship across the universe. Well, not fake, but an inspirational one. And another one that is uh, soon to be in command of an orbiting outpost that orbits our planet every 90 minutes. Uh, Chris Hatfield has been doing a real good job of reaching out to folks. He also uh, put, a, put together a library of uh, ambient uh, 
sounds on board the ISS for folks to listen to and just sort of kind of say, hey, this is what it sounds like and so on. So what, what he's been doing is sort of just taking us by the hand and showing us around and in, in his own way. And he's also been, been very, very prolific with his uh, photographic uh, posts. If anybody's interested in following him, Sawyer, do you have his uh, Twitter handle? Yes, indeed. He is on Twitter, cmdr underscore Hadfield, H-A-D-F-I-E-L-D. So again, he is a highly recommended follow because he has some great pictures as well as some interesting encounters with former Star Trek stars. And I believe also, too, I think uh, Leonard Nimoy also fired something his way, too, at one point. Um, I, I don't, I can't confirm or deny that because I kind of remember seeing it, but I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, uh, Hadfield's been incredible up there. He really has. And he's been using uh, social media, I think, in the right way to go ahead and do some serious, serious outreach to uh, folks over here. Uh, back here on Earth and uh, really sort of bringing us on board the ISS. So hats off to him. So once again, we definitely highly suggest you going ahead and following him on Twitter. Once again, that is CMDR underscore H-A-D-F-I-E-L-D. Now, we got the happy story out of the way. Now let's go to the fun uncertainty of NASA's future. Gene, do you want a buzzkill for us? Sure, why not? Uh, this isn't exactly a buzzkill. This is sort of a, an interesting concept that was floated I guess, during the uh, uh, the Christmas holiday. The first time I saw it was through, oddly enough, uh, a British uh, concern, uh, the Daily the Mail Online. Uh, it was uh, revealed by NASA that there is a plan to sort of what they're quote, calling, quote, lasso, close quote, an asteroid, and uh, put it around... Uh, the orbit of the moon, so in in essence, giving the moon a moon. The idea, I think, is to use it as some sort of a space station and uh, and possibly a jump off point to uh, to Mars or so on, or possibly even use you know for mining possibilities. I know I was there when a, a company called uh, called Planetary Resources uh, the, just this past uh, spring. Um, decided they wanted to go ahead and try to mine an asteroid. Well, the idea is, if you can't, I guess the idea is, if you don't want to go out to an asteroid, bring an asteroid to you and sort of examine it and figure out you know, what it's made of and so on and so forth. Also, try to figure out, too, if you can mine the thing. You know, again, the technology is not going to be available for another, what, 10 to 12 years. They're, they're saying, according to an article here that I'm looking at, uh, from New Scientist, uh, dated uh, January 2nd. But um, one of the targets that NASA is looking at for a possible trip out to an asteroid, if we are going to go ahead and launch a piloted mission out to an asteroid, is called 1999A010. And that mission would take about, oh, about, a, about six months. It, and it would also expose astronauts to long-term radiation and so on and so forth. So the idea is to kind of sort of robotically snare one of these asteroids, maybe, instead of going out to meet it, bring it to you. I mean, there, there's, this is just another plan in sort of a, a, a whole plethora of plans that are coming out of, out of NASA. First, we were going to go to an asteroid, then maybe on to Mars, and now, well, then we have the space station in orbit around at a Lagrange point, and now we have a plan to bring an asteroid to us. So 
but the idea is what's going on? Is there a coherent plan? Is there there's something kind of cooking or cooking? What is happening? Um, I, I'm I'm going to go ahead and quote a um, one of our uh, our dear friends over at NASA Watch, uh, Keith Cowling, and I'm going to read directly from from his website here uh, on a post that he placed on on December 31st. He says, "quote." When it comes to having a coherent, consistent, strategic plan, NASA simply doesn't have one. Instead, it spins around in ten different directions at once, as if it has institutionalized attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Somebody needs to hit the reset button. Well, Mark Winnington, uh, not too long ago, in an article that uh, he write he writes for uh, for the examiner basically said, well, we tried hitting the reset button. It was called the election. And that reset button decided that we were just going to go ahead and stick with the status quo. So, you know, I'm I'm still trying to find out, does anybody within the organization know what NASA's strategic human uh, exploration plan is? Right now, it just seems like we have several different plans being floated out, out there. But post-shuttle, I really don't know what's going on. Um, I'll throw it out to the floor. If anybody has any ideas as far as if, if I'm wrong or anything like that, um, what do you guys think? Do we have this coherent plan or, 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 or are we going off in five different directions all at once? It seems like we're building the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle. We're building the space launch system. But we don't have a purpose articulated for, the, for these two vehicles. I think NASA's honestly confused as a whole. I mean, half people are saying, let's go back to the moon. Some people are saying, let's go back to Mars. They're saying, let's capture an asteroid. Let's visit an asteroid. Let's have an asteroid space station, anything like this. You have all these different options. And yet nothing is set in stone for the future. We have Orion. That's it. Eventually it's going to Mars. Maybe an asteroid. Maybe the moon. We don't know anything officially yet. So honestly, I think NASA's just confused as a whole. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, we're talking about these long-range missions. There are still radiation being the biggest factor. There was a report out just a, just last week um, that radiation may have a hand in in possibly causing Alzheimer's or triggering Alzheimer's uh, for a, a long-distance space flight. So. You know, we still have have the radiation problem to solve. We still have a lot of other other problems to solve to really, really go out further to Mars. I say, you know, I, I'm still one of these lunar centric individuals. I still say the moon is easy to get to. You're three days away from a ham sandwich if something goes wrong, and we still really haven't explored the whole place. So, um, I'm I'm kind of pro moon to try to figure out number one are there any resources over there that can go ahead and help us get anywhere else I mean, bringing the asteroid over is fine but you know it also opens the door to some you know creative stupidity and theoretically you know if it's done the wrong way you've basically threatened the planet um I'm sure they'll figure out ways to do this properly if they decide to go with this. But it just seems like every other day a new plan comes up and there's no real target. There's no real cohesive idea. There has to be a goal articulated at least from the executive branch 
And that goal has to be sustainable and, and fundable and so on. And I just don't see that happening. And I, you know, as much as I hate to say this, I don't think the legislative branch currently really cares. I don't think the, the, the executive branch current really care, currently really cares. So we'll just have to, you know, stay tuned. There, there's going to be a goal here post-shuttle sooner or later. Uh, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that something happens very, very soon. I honestly have to agree along the lines of the fact that there is the possible harm to the planet. I mean, when you think about it, Jupiter is our natural bodyguard for a reason, sucking up most of these so they don't come and hit us. And yet we want to bring one close. So this is a dangerous idea if we do go through with it. But then again, there are a lot of dangerous ideas that NASA's had that have worked out well. This one, I think, is a lot more risky to, than just a couple of people launching or something happening on the moon. But this could affect all 7 billion of us. Either way, honestly, I think NASA's going to eventually make a smart decision. I don't know what that is yet, but they'll make something. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sawyer, in that respect. But, you know, I'm, and I'm sure, too, I mean, we're talking the technology not being available to bring an asteroid over here for another 10, 12 years yet. But, uh, uh, again, what are you going to do in that interim? I mean, we do have the commercial stuff sort of waiting in the wings, but um, that's for ferries back and forth to the ISS. Right now, what is our end goal? What is our end game? What do we want to do in space? We haven't decided that yet, and we need to figure that out. We still have these two beautiful tools that we're building, the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle and a heavy lift system. A lot of people don't think we need that, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of one of those that kind of think we do need a, need a heavy lift. But, why, you know, but what are we going to be using these things for? And I think before we go ahead and even, you know, <laughs> before we even turn a bolt, as far as trying to figure out what, you know, if these two vehicles are going to fly, how about articulating a purpose for them? That's all I'm saying. I agree. I mean, once we get the tests up and operational in 2014, that's when we're going to have to really put the hammer down and say, okay, this is what we're doing. In the meantime, for the year that we have to wait till the first test flight of the Orion capsule, you know, this is a interesting idea that we can keep looking at. I agree, sir. I can't wait to see Orion fly. I really can't because it signals that we're back and that we're at least trying something new and we're trying to get back at it after shuttle. But again, how about giving this magnificent machine a purpose? That's all I'm saying. Indeed, and obviously only time will tell what will end up being of the Orion and if we go to an asteroid and what we do with it. Fingers crossed, Sawyer. Fingers crossed. Alrighty then, so continuing along, during our hiatus of news shows, when we weren't releasing news shows, there was a documentary that was aired on British television highlighting Neil Armstrong, which it doesn't seem like that would be a big deal. There have been many documentaries since he's passed away looking back at his life and some interesting things about him. But this one either created controversy or solved controversy. You be the judge. What do we mean by that? Well, an interesting thing was said on this. It was said that supposedly about three months before the launch was when Neil Armstrong was supposed to head down to the Kennedy Space Center and interactions with his family was to be cut to a minimal. Before he was to head down, he put the kids to sleep and asked his brother if he wanted to play a game of Risk, a board game. They said sure. 
While he was there, he apparently slipped a piece of paper to his brother. On it, the words were written, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, what's so significant about that? Well, two things. One, it was originally believed, and according to Neil himself, that those words were created while he was on the moon. Not ahead of time, not thought out, but something he thought up of sporadically. That's one. Second was the controversy of, was it that's one small step for a man or one small step for man? Now, in all the audio recordings, Neil himself has even said in the past that he's listened to the audio recordings and cannot hear the letter A, but he says that he said it, and on the written piece of paper, supposedly the uh was there. This is interesting, huh? Yeah, it's it's kind of putting an interesting spin on history. I mean, uh, everybody kind of thought that these words were sort of spontaneous, that they just sort of, you know, came from the emotion of the moment or something like that. Um, and in turn, we're finding out that uh, it it isn't that way at all, that these were kind of sort of thought of and, and, uh, and really, really thought out and, and so on. I mean, I remember um, everybody asking, you know, Neil, what, what he would, what he was thinking about and what he would say. And he said, well, I'll probably think of something appropriate. You know, I haven't really given up much thought, but I'll, I'll, I'll think of something appropriate. But apparently he was giving up some thought, according to the BBC. Now, uh, it should be interesting what the fallout of all this is going to be. And if anybody goes ahead and claims otherwise, it's a darn shame the man isn't here to, uh, to either say yay or nay anymore. But it's... Uh, I'm sure uh, some interesting, more interesting things are going to come out as a result of all this, and and uh, should be should be kind of fun to find out uh, if that's really really the case. It's just interesting to think that through all this time he might have been intentionally lying to the public because I could imagine that he had plenty of people saying to him, "Oh, you should say this line or something like that," and so that way he didn't have to fear of you know somebody taking credit for it or that. It was something that someone had anything to do with. It was just that he came up with it so he didn't have to deal with that. And I can understand why he did that, but it's interesting. The documentary, If You Choose to Find It, was broadcast on the BBC, and it was titled, Neil Armstrong, First Man on the Moon. The article, too, goes ahead, and, and uh, I'm looking at the, an article uh, from Yahoo News that also quotes them. And uh, uh, I believe the paper... Uh, you know, after uh, uh, Dean Armstrong, the uh, uh, Neil's brother, basically looked at it and just said, uh, "You know, fabulous." After reading it, but uh, um, it should be interesting to see. You know, I, I'd really love to talk to uh, you know Andrew Chaikin or or somebody like that to find out in his research if this had come up or if this had had uh, had uh, you know just sort of. You know, just sort of hinted at stuff like that. So, you know, again, it's an interesting little footnote to history, and it, it will be fun, uh, fun looking at this. Interesting fallout, but obviously a man of many mysteries. Indeed, Sawyer, indeed. Speaking of many mysteries, NASA budgets. Gene? Oh, boy. Well, the last act of the 112th Congress uh, was to, one of the last acts anyway, was to pass a uh, resolution H.R. 6586, the Space Exploration Sustainability Act, 
what this does is essentially extends um, a liability risk sharing uh, created by Congress that requires commercial launch companies to purchase insurance from any you know, reasonable uh, risk of damage to third parties, and and it also provides uh, appropriations, you know, either above or below any type of uh, statutory limit. So it basically helps get you know commercial launch crews off the hook, but um, it also basically funds, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, and I'm looking at an article here from Aviation Week and our good friend, Mr. Frank Mooring. It also basically issues a waiver for uh, NASA to uh, extend flight services on Soyuz until the end of 2020, uh, which is kind of interesting since uh, we're supposed to go ahead and pick up uh, commercial launch uh, crews um, as of 2017. Um, in and around there. So I guess that might be saying to Congress, well, we're going to hedge our bets and make sure that we still have access to the ISS. So we'll allow NASA to fund, um, if possible or if needed, we'll allow NASA to go ahead and fund uh, seats on Soyuz. I don't know if that says that Congress has got, or at least this particular Congress has got a lot of faith in the commercial crew capabilities and it getting online by 2017 but uh, that's that's neither here nor there I'm my personal opinion is I think they're going to be ready um, but the the interesting thing here was that there was an endorsement in there for the space launch system and for the Orion uh, multi-purpose crew vehicle and uh, it uh, to quote the uh, the article here, says the Space Exploration Sustainability Act, adopted January 2nd, specifically lists the heavy lift space launch system, the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle, and commercial and cargo space vehicles under development with NASA backing it as, quote, inherently complementary and interrelated. And it actually forbids the use of SLS or Orion funding to pay for the commercial crew development. So in other words, you can't go ahead and take from one budget to pay for the other, uh, which is what um, NASA has been accused of in the past. The, the, the idea, though, here is that the, they're trying to go ahead and say, hey, we, we endorse the, um, the commercial crew part of this thing, but we also believe heavily in you know, what NASA's trying to do with the space launch system, which is the large Saturn V-like booster, and the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle, essentially the replacement for the uh, for the shuttle, but they're basically saying that this reaffirms th- these two vehicles, and this was sort of like the the compromise that was hammered out by um, retiring Senator Bill Nelson and retiring Senator K. Bailey Hutchinson. The other thing that this thing does is uh, basically saying to uh, to the White House. You know, we want these things, and the White House, you know, has made no bones about it. They don't want SLS. They don't, you know, basically they they they're leaning more toward the commercial end of things. Um, so, you know, again, we've we've got you know Congress basically tell, you know giving the the White House sort of a you know a bad dog, if you will. Again, um, it, it, this is basically saying that okay, we'll. We'll make sure that we've got enough to get us to the end of the ISS, which is 2020, 
Um, we'll give NASA a waiver to do that. We'll give commercial crew their due. But, you know, White House, we still want SLS and we still want Orion. And we don't see them as direct competitors, whereas the White House might. So we'll have to just see how this all plays out. And by the way, just, just as, a, as a reminder to everybody, I know we kind of escaped, and I, I hate this term, we, the infamous fiscal cliff this time. But um, we kind of actually pushed it off about two months. So the sequestration that we talked about here on this program for a little bit um, for both the defense and science-related stuff like NASA, the National Science Foundation, and so on, is still out there. It's still looming in our headlights. We haven't really dodged that bullet. That's going to happen about two months when we talk about the debt ceiling. I don't want to go ahead and bore everybody to tears, but... Again, the old adage, no bucks, no buck rogers. So we're, you know, here we go again. So we've just put off the conversation for about two months. We haven't really fixed it. So beware, that, that's still out there, and that could still affect a lot of things going forward. I'm honestly amazed that Congress got anything done, let alone something related to space. So that alone is an amazing step forward, no matter yeah, this- what kind of a step it is. Yeah, I'm with you, Sawyer. This this has been a very, very you know, to not to go political, but this has been a very interesting Congress. So the 113th Congress, I hope, is a little bit more effective, especially in this area here. Yes, indeed, we can always hope, and of course, there's always those petitions and pennies for NASA, and we'll keep our hopes up. <sighs> Don't get me started. <laughs> uh, well, I'll get you started later on something else. Oh, by all means, I can't wait. <laughs> Yeah, but we're not at that point yet. Right now, though, we haven't heard yet from Mark. And Mark, what do you have for us? Do you know? What I've got is, uh, let's talk for a second about a rocket launch on August 5th of 2011. You don't remember any launches in 2011. Many people don't, other than the final launches of the shuttle program. But on August 5th, 2011, Juno launched to Jupiter. Now, the interesting thing about that, it's a five-year cruise. So it's not going to be there until just shy of five years later, which is July 4th, 2016. By the time it gets there, it'll have covered 1.74 billion miles. It'll orbit Jupiter 33 times during one Earth year. It's going to be on a polar orbit. And the trajectory that Juno is on will give it a little boost in speed from a flyby of Earth, which will be in October 2013. So that's the rocket trivia. But let me tell you what I just saw today. I'm set up for uh, email alerts because I miss so much stuff otherwise from YouTube from the NASA Juno channel. And lo and behold, today, um, kind of hard to count because there's so many different videos that are there, but on the NASA Juno channel, they posted today about eight videos. Now, these videos are by the principal investigators of each of the instruments that are on the Juno spacecraft, and you hear them explain in just a minute or two a little bit about the instrument and a little bit about the science. And in some cases... I found it really interesting to hear him say, we don't really know what we're going to see because this is the first time that they're going to have a spacecraft do that close inspection with this 
number of instruments that's on board and do the things that they're going to do. So I will encourage you to, and we'll provide a link to one of them I think would probably be nice because sometimes I have trouble searching and finding anything even when I know exactly what I'm looking for. But if you do a search for NASA Juno, and that's all one text string, N-A-S-A-J-U-N-O, uh, and YouTube, and then Science Instruments, you'll find this list of nine videos that they just put up today. And uh, I think the one that maybe we'll throw in there as a, a link on our page is going to be about JunoCam. Now we talked about MoonCam that was on Grail, and here Juno has a camera that's going to be kind of uh, crowdsourced as to what they're going to look at when they make their flybys on their polar orbit. And so JunoCam, I think, is really interesting because it's going to be the people that are interested in getting some images of Jupiter from a different perspective up close. So take a look at that. And let me also suggest that you just go to Wikipedia and go to the Juno page on Wikipedia and you'll find a, uh, some really uh, some great text describing it, some of the details that I've already given you. There's a little diagram of exactly what the launch and the orbital flyby of Earth looks like and, and getting out to Jupiter in 2016. There's a picture of a aurora on one of the poles of Jupiter and uh, little tidbits about each of the instruments. But even better than that, you have to go to the missionjuno.swri.edu. And SWRI is the Southwest Research Institute, and they are the home of a lot of these principal investigators, and they're the organization that is key in bringing Juno together. And we talked to one of the representatives from there a while back, in fact, August of 2011, we talked to Dr. David McComas, and he's the principal investigator for JADE, the Jovian Auroral Distribution Experiment. So if you want to hear more detail from one of our shows, go back to episode 333. That was in the 2011 podcast link on our website. And there's always one more thing with me. So if you want to follow NASA Juno on Twitter, it's at NASA Juno. N-A-S-A-J-U-N-O. And I guess that's it for me. Great job, Mark. And, and thanks again for the reminder for folks that we did talk to uh, folks over at Juno. This mission kind of holds a near and dear place in my heart for a whole plethora of reasons, and I'm wishing it all the best. I can't wait for, uh, for Juno to get out over to its destination and start work. Yes, indeed. And with all of the stories and links that we mentioned in our shows, they will be in the show notes. Which, just a reminder, since it is the first news show of the year, if you're not sure where to get our show notes, you can access them two ways depending on how you listen to us. If you listen to us directly on our website, you can visit TalkingSpaceOnline.com, click on the show that you want, most likely it'll be under 2013 podcasts, and in the description will be all the links. Or, if you are listening to this on iTunes... If you go next to the actual file, there should be a small little I for information, and in that will be the show notes as well. All right, so our trips around the table have been looking more diagonal than anything, than straightforward, regular round trips. But, believe it or not, we are on our third trip around the table, and Gene, it goes to you to start us off. 
Well, sir, apparently the rumor mill is circulating. Um, for the past few months, it's suggesting that uh, some within the U.S. defense and intelligence community believe that uh, China is gearing up for yet another anti-satellite weapons test. Uh, the last time they did this, uh, which was back, I believe, in January of 2007, in fact, I'm looking at an article here from New Scientist uh, by Kelly Young, dated uh, in January, that apparently what had occurred is that um, China tried to go ahead and uh, launch a essentially a weapon at one of their old defunct um, polar orbiting Saturn satellites, and they were successful. Then the uh, collision created about 40,000 pieces of debris um, that were about larger than uh, one centimeter and uh, had tracked this, these, this big cloud of space debris up there. Now, again, we've gone through several um, iterations here on this program about how critical the problem is, and some individuals believe that we've already reached that tipping point of, uh, for, for debris up there. Um, the, uh, the ISS, I believe, had dodged this particular debris field once before, the one that was created by this thing. And uh, now here we go again with China's kind of sort of hinting at they're going to make the same test, which, um, again... Uh, kind of sort of says, well, you know, is this really, really a smart idea? And um, the uh, report's coming from uh, a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a, a Cambridge-based body. According to this article that I'm looking at, it seems like the rumors started developing just before Christmas. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, you know, an unidentified high-ranking U.S. defense official told, was in contact with the Obama administration, was was saying that they were extraordinarily concerned about a new anti-satellite weapons test. And uh, I'm wondering, too, if this is going to add more, if they do do this, uh, what kind of debris field is going to be created, what they're going to do, and so on. So this is really, really a big deal, Um, you know, as far as orbital operations. Number one, it's a big deal from a defense standpoint that the Chinese could go ahead and knock out an orbiting satellite. But number two, it's a, it's a big deal as far as the result is concerned. I mean, theoretically, you can use you know, this, this you know, and this is just me talking, but theoretically, you could go ahead and use this, you know, take out even a defunct satellite and be able to go ahead and create a debris cloud that anything can hit. So is this really a smart idea to go ahead and make more junk up there that... <laughs> That we're going to have to, that other nations are going to have to dodge. Oh yeah, they they never leave any shortage of fun for us because that's that's one of those problems with all of the numbers of people who can launch satellites. I mean, it's amazing that the number of people keeps growing, but then you look at some of the people on the list and you see some of the Middle Eastern countries who the United States isn't very friendly with, and then you see the communist countries like China and now North Korea. And it's great that people are launching satellites, but sometimes you get this, and then you get the knuckleheads who think, oh, we have a defunct satellite. Rather than try and deorbit it, let's blow it up. I mean, that's every kid's fantasy, but at the same time, it's every debris tracker's worst nightmare. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it, sir, from a, from a defense standpoint, though, too. The Chinese can go ahead and take out you know, a, a surveillance satellite of ours. Grant you, it would be an act of war, but I'm... I'm going under the pretext that they're looking at this from the aspect, well, you know, if 
a shooting war is declared, we could theoretically take out, you know, the enemy's eye in the sky. Um, but everybody's just saying, well, why don't we cooperate with China? I remember just last year there was a lot of talk. Well, why don't we, we think about bringing China on, on, on board the ISS and so on and so forth. And then harebrained stuff like this happens. So, you know, there, there's got to be a level of trust here. And there's got to be a level of, you know, come on, guys, the, the, you know, we all have to play nice and low Earth orbit because what one country does affects, you know, everybody else now. And, and because this debris problem is, is, is so huge, we'll never ever, you know, we keep doing this. We'll never really, really be rid of the problem. Exactly. And as you might know, even though it's 2013, it's still sometimes this show, it seems, will be the Space Junk Podcast. But it's, that's always going to be an issue, it seems like, is Space Junk. And then you get countries like this who hopefully have learned since their last experience, but you never know. Yeah, I mean, the, the article basically says, you know, quote, creating debris as it, as it now understands would threaten its, you know, their own satellites even over the next several years. And China apparently has got plans to place 20 or new, 20 new navigation satellites up there and, and so on. So again, you know, what you do today could come back and swing around and hurt you, hurt you tomorrow. And hopefully China comes to their senses and realizes, well, maybe we could do this a different way and not go ahead and, and, and do this, this test. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, number one, that the rumors are unfounded. But number two is maybe they'll come to their senses and figure out that this is not really the smartest thing in the world to do. Well, we can only hope and keep an eye out and then wait for more space station maneuvers for people to get out of the way. Yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, the, there just seems to be not one more day that the, the ISS doesn't you know, have a debris avoidance maneuver. So fingers crossed, sir. Fingers crossed. Yes, indeed. Alrighty, now we are going to move on to our final story, which we started lighthearted. We are going to end lighthearted as well. What do we mean by that? Well, I don't know if this is lighthearted or sad and pathetic, but over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the White House petitions, where it says, we the people, dot, 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 insert your claim here, and if you get at least 25,000 signatures, the White House must respond to it. Well, we discussed a couple. There was one where its goal was to increase the funding for NASA. That one fell short of the signatures needed by about 9,000 of them. However, the other one we discussed and urged you not to sign, which was the Death Star, the plan for the U.S. to build a Death Star, supposedly for defense, got 33,000 signatures within the first 48 hours. So from the time that we mentioned it to the time that this show was released, mentioning that, they had already had the required 25,000 signatures. And now they're at it again, except this time... The petition is not to build a Death Star. The petition instead is to build a model of Star Trek's Starship Enterprise. Insane, huh? Well, um, we've talked about this site on this program a couple times before. One of the, the site's called buildtheenterprise.org. There's an engineer over there that is hawking the fact that maybe, just maybe, it might be theoretically feasible to build a spacecraft slash space station that would 
kind of sort of look like the USS Enterprise. Um, the whole idea is this could be you know used as a as a space station. It could be used as an interplanetary spacecraft. Um, I believe such a spacecraft. I forget exactly how long it would take to get to Mars. I think he's. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how long long the, the website says. I don't remember it offhand. Um, but it would be able to get to Mars in a reasonable amount of time. It would be able to get to the moon in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and when it's not being used, can serve, can serve as a space station. I believe this particular rendition of the Enterprise, he claims, could hold about 1,000 people and would have its own you know, artificial gravity system and so on and so forth. And the engineer has basically put the White House website... Um, a petition to go ahead and, quote, assign NASA to do a feasibility study uh, in building the what he's, he's dubbing the Gen 1 USS Enterprise interplanetary spaceship. Um, some romantic notions, to be sure. You know, I mean, nothing you know, would, would inspire folks to go ahead and see something that actually looks like a mythical starship plying the, you know, the seas of, of space. But... You know, is this really something we ought to be doing? That's number one. Number two, on the outset, it sounds crazy. I mean, if somebody went ahead and, and if I'm a politician and I'm seeing this, I'm going to be like, uh-huh, yeah, right. And it's the same thing with the Death Star peti- petition. If I was a politician, I would be sitting there and going, uh-huh, yeah, sure, fine. Um, I'm like, this is going to fly. I mean, I, I posted a... A, uh, something on, on, on my Facebook page that basically says, you know, these two plans, the Death Star and the Enterprise, have about as much chance as an ice cube and a blast furnace. But um, what surprised me is that we fell 9,300 signatures short of, you know, doing the real thing, which is basically just, you know, tweaking NASA's budget a little bit and giving it the funding it needs to do its job. Um, it, it, now, we had no skin in that game. We really didn't put that petition forward here in this program, but, you know, gosh darn it, I hawked it on my own, and it unfortunately, it, it kind of sort of fell on deaf ears. I'm guessing it's probably due to the timing because the holiday and so on, but, and of course, you know, the budget constraints that, uh, you know, have been touted right and left, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it's sort of like, to me, it demonstrates the fact that there is an interest out there in space exploration. The very fact that this Death Star petition passed with, you know, within 48 hours of it being posted. Um, And this, at last check, this USS Enterprise petition is kind of sort of crawling there. It's got about 5,185 signatures as as far as um, this recording date is concerned. And that's got until January 22nd. So um, I, I, I think this one is going to be, no pun intended, star-crossed. But uh, um, it, it says there's an interest there, but yet the, the NASA petition also failed. Um, guys, what, I'll open this up to the floor. What do you, what do you, what do you think's going on here? <laughs> I don't know if they're jokesters, they're pranksters, or what they are, or just very open-minded, creative people, which I have a feeling it's that last one. But I don't know. I I mean, 
where else are you going to get a forum for people to look at this and actually consider it, especially people of high power? I mean, they may consider it for about tenth of a second and laugh at it, but that's still consideration, is it not? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, the Death Star one was was I mean, honest to God, tongue in cheek, and and the sad part about it is somebody within the Obama administration now has to go ahead and respond to this thing. Uh, to me, I don't know, it, it kind of hurts the credibility going forward of these petitions to begin with when involving space policy and, and technology. That one really, really hurts. The Enterprise one, actually, if you look at the Build the Enterprise website, it, 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 it's actually kind of a serious idea of looking at this. Now, other engineers have kind of pointed out flaws in the design and so on, saying this won't work, this won't work, this won't work. And it really, really hinges a lot on this anti-gravity system, which you know doesn't really exist. Um, but it's you know at least it's a stab in the dark. It's a stab at least trying to theoretically see if this thing could actually be built. I'll I'll, I'll give the gentleman who who's um, who's in front of this thing you know kind of hats off on that one, but. I don't think anybody's going to take that one seriously. That's why I say, you know, both of these have got a, you know, a, you know, an ice cube's chance in, in perdition. So I'm not sure that that this is this is going. You know, either one of these are are going to fly. That's one. And NASA's got enough problems as it is without you know looking at you know these interesting proposals. Um, what really, really disturbs me a little bit, though, is, is, is again, that, that the, the flat-out, you know, just increasing the budget to a point where NASA can actually get something accomplished, that didn't work. But, so that's what I, I it, it just doesn't compute that, that, the, that the Star Wars thing went, went crazy. The Enterprise, eh, not so much so far. But we got zero with the, well, we didn't get anywhere with, with the actual real thing. That's why it just doesn't compute to me. There's an interest there, but not quite. Indeed. I, I think the Death Star one, again, like you're saying, is just a clever quip of someone who might be bored late at night saying, yeah, this is interesting. But the Starship Enterprise one, I think, is, is an interesting one. And it's definitely, taking, it's definitely worth taking a look at his website and considering signing it. That one, we're not going to say like the Death Star, don't bother signing it. But this is one that I think that... Take a look at it for yourself, and if you really think it's interesting, like I honestly think it is, you can you can go ahead and give it a sign. I'm going to sit on my hands on this one, and as much as I I'm I'm a diehard you know old school Star Trek fan, it would and it would be really cool. I think I'm going to sit on my hands on this one. I would much rather put something forward that my politicians in you know in the legislative and and executive branches. Are going to take extraordinarily seriously, and I just don't think that either one of these plans will. That's just my opinion. I agree, but then again, one of the most signed petitions ever on that website was a petition for Texas to secede from the United States. Just keep that in mind as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you win. <laughs> so yeah, so you're questioning the credibility of some of the future of the space and technology ones. I think they're probably the most sane ones out there at the moment. Okay, you win. <laughs> but definitely take a look at it, and if you want to sign it, go right ahead. 
And on that note, there is one thing that we are going to sign, and that is we are going to sign off for this episode because that is the end of the episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and to our uh, listeners that have been supporting us low these many years, thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. And thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. We'll see you next time. Yes, indeed. And Gene, as you mentioned, for all these years, this is the fifth year that we have put out an episode in. We started in 2009 with our first season, and this is 2013, the start of season five, our fifth year, which we have released episodes. Boy, we have been doing this a long time, and we hope you've been enjoying it because we hope to be doing it for a lot longer. So until next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.